Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. All right. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And for our program today, you have myself, Jacob, as your presenter. And then we have... Felix. I'm uh, also here after a couple of weeks. Good to be back in the studio. Yeah. And it probably is um, going to be probably Felix's probably last time to kind of present for this week, because I'm, I presume you're, you're starting your new job. Yeah, next starting your job on Monday. It's good in some ways, and uh, you know, pay the bills, but... Uh... Yeah, I've enjoyed having your time off. (laughs) All right. Well, before I just get into the program, I'd just like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kula Nation. Um, We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Okay, so I guess the first kind of news story I guess I want to kind of talk about is... um, one of the kind of interesting kind of things that kind of dominated the headlines, I forgot when it happened, actually. When did it happen, Felix? There was this whole big deal about how Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp went down for like six hours. And then, of course, for us, we were all asleep when that happened. But it, for some reason, it seemed to have dominated the media headlines. Yeah, like I, think even it was, the- I think it was Wednesday morning. It was a couple of days ago. Yeah, so <laughs> I remember waking up and just like seeing all the media about it and it's like, Wow, sounds big. Yeah. Instantly checked Facebook. Everything seemed fine. It was all over. (laughs) Well, it's, it sort of, um, it it sort of reflects the fact that this story kind of, um, was like such, considered such a big deal. I think it's sort of just reflective of how reliant people are on these platforms. Like the fact that people, you know, a lot of people just get their news or even, um, or updates on life from just using Instagram, WhatsApp and Facebook. And, you know, even though WhatsApp is like a bit of, it's, it's like a text messaging kind of application. It is kind of used in some sense for news, like, you know, amongst sort of families, etc. People have their own sort of WhatsApp family chats and their special yeah. sort of WhatsApp oh, yeah. chats on special kind of new. And then they spread news to each other. Sometimes they're spreading weird, strange conspiracies <laughs> with each other and so on. But WhatsApp is, is one of the major forms of communication of a huge population of the world. Like I was reading about, this is just after the um, the, uh, the shutdown, but um, like a huge proportion of Latin America uses WhatsApp exclusively to communicate with each other mm. because text messaging is too expensive. They A lot of uh, phone companies in Latin America still charge for text messages in the way that they don't do that anymore here in Australia. And so it's just a cheap, basically free way of um, of communicating with people online. Mm. And when that goes down, they're kind of stuck. Like, they're, they're not really set up mm. for just switching to another platform. Well, actually, there's a very good illustration of that in pop culture, actually, which is um, the whole opening scene in Parasite, actually um, the South Korean film that won the um, Best Picture for Oscar, um, which is, um, yeah, essentially the start of Parasite involved, it basically depicts... Um, 
very poor um, working class people um, living in the pits, essentially, like underground, under in this um, very sort of downtrodden sort of apartment sort of air complex. It's ground floor or b- below ground floor, yeah. and uh, the, it um, it opens with them. Um, realizing they can get free Wi-Fi from from some cafe nearby that has has so reopened. They have to they have to um, stand on the toilet. To yeah, they, they, and then of course they go say, "Well, finally, I can I can get my WhatsApp text messages." Yeah. So <laughs> that's sort of like I think that's a good sort of illustration. I think you're definitely yeah, it's definitely right. Like I think WhatsApp is very in a lot of the global kind of South kind of countries because of um the lack of. Because they lack um, of, yeah phone tower infrastructure low, like, like a phone tower infrastructure yeah WhatsApp becomes the thing because yeah internet internet access is actually pretty widespread in most in most of the world actually yeah um, which is kind of which is sort of funny to think about when you think about how backwards Australia's internet is because even Australia's sort of internet can be worse than than country that might seem um, like it would be like, less richer yeah. Well, the main thing I kind of want to go in terms of going over, the, um, going over this, over this is, is basically on the same day that, um, that Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram were down for six hours, there was actually a bit of a sort of, a bit of a big news story about, about this Facebook whistleblower, Francis Hogan, testifying before, um, before the US Congress. And there were sort of a number of interesting things, um, that sort of have come out of this. But basically, essentially, this is a former Facebook um, data scientist. And essentially, she testified to the US Congress that, you know, the social network giants products harm children and fuel polarization in the US, while its executives refuse to change because they elevate profits over safety. And I guess what what in terms of what this kind of means, I mean, this is a, this is not a new story. In, in in some sense, she's essentially saying things that we kind of already knew about Facebook. But one of the things about the nature of Facebook and Instagram is essentially Facebook actually makes massive amounts of money off off kind of paid advertisements. They also get um you know they also get massive profits over the fact that people use their platform. And so essentially the, the system is kind of designed in, in certain sort of ways. So there are particular algorithms within Facebook. Now I don't know like the full technologies of obviously how they work, but essentially, you know, the more likes that you get for a particular post, the more it's likely to appear in other people's kind of news feeds. And so essentially you can sort of see, imagine in the context of this sort of growing right wing kind of, you know, far right sort of movement, um, politics, um, and also the context of, of hate speech and disinformation, there is an element by which it's not necessarily in Facebook's interest to actually moderate its platforms, because essentially to moderate its platforms would mean alienating certain sections of their base and also would possibly also go against, you know, the fact that you know, the fact that they, the fact that if people are going on the platform because they're getting information they can't get anywhere else, that turns out to be disinformation, fake news, um, that actually generates its own sort of in- inbuilt audience within Facebook. And of course, that brings hits to Facebook. And so, of course, Facebook is in this awkward position because Facebook is a corporation that, um, a capitalist corporation that only exists to make profit. Um, they would be less incentivized to actually take any sort of action. And of course, the other thing that she sort of raises is the whole issue around, um, safety of teenagers, et cetera. And I guess what she would be referring to there is the fact that, you know, it's a bit of a, a, um, a depressing thing, but you know, the fact that within Instagram, 
maybe less so Facebook these days because Facebook tends to have a much older audience than what it used to. You know, there's this whole, there's a whole kind of internet bullying sort of culture on Instagram, you know, that, that kind of thing, you know, there's unrealistic expectations about body image and sexism or kind of that, those kind of elements that, that kind of phenomena. And of course, Facebook is not incentivized to actually even take action against those things either. So yeah, it's like, I mean, Facebook is a corporation. And it has monopoly control, really, over a lot of this um, uh, this information. And, and it, it like they're they're motivated by profit. They they don't have any accountability to the community at all. And it makes sense that, of course, why would they exclude parts of their market? They, you know, why why would they willingly cut off sections of the market that will make money for them if they have to moderate themselves? They they'll try to fight fight against that and try to draw in as many people from every part of life as they can and to also draw them into a situation where they're making the maximum amount of money out of them. And they're using all the endorphins we all get from, you know, people liking what we post and, you know, positive interactions and things like that. Like, we all feel that, but obviously it can be weaponized for profit and it's like a giant funnel. And it's while, while Facebook's turning into the, the medium of the boomers... Instagram is the younger generation, so they're they're cornering every aspect of the market, and they'll never have a reason to you know, to encourage people to get off it or to <laughs> well, moderate. What, what, what I sort of love is as well is um, sometimes people people go um, pe- random random people I know like on the left and friends of mine and and so on. There's some there's always some someone who says, well, that's it, I'm giving up on Facebook. I'm going to use Instagram, yeah. which is, I mean, in essence, Instagram is essentially Facebook anyway, because they're both owned by, well, um, Instagram is owned by Facebook. And I guess another interesting thing, and this is where the double standard with Facebook is, okay, so we've just sort of acknowledged that, you know, Facebook is not necessarily incentivized to moderate its content, um, regardless if it's pushing hate content, etc. But there is a strong history of Facebook actually moderating its content in response to political pressure. And there has been this whole history and this whole track record of Facebook taking action, say, um, giving content moderation of, say, pro-Palestinian campaigning, because essentially the Israeli government um, has... Um, att- uh, attempts to kind of lobby Facebook and also the fact that I think I'm pretty convinced that, you know, even though he's not as that outspoken about it, Mark Zuckerberg is, is I think, you know, essentially does support, has given support to the Israel state. On, oh, Mark on Zuckerberg America. is so um, reactionary. He's, yeah. you know, he supports all of the worst causes. <laughs> yeah. So there's, and so, yeah, it's, it's a bit hypocritical that, you know, Facebook doesn't necessarily... Um, take is incentivized not to take action, but of course they re- they will regularly take action to moderate its content based on um, in response to certain political kind of pressure, mm-hmm. um, and that includes you know the censoring of pro Palestinian activists etc., uh, including attacking, um, including um, moderating comments that are critical of Israel, and then. Um, the Israel state and then passing that off as anti-Semitism. So I think, you know, there's all, there's all those sort of elements that, you know, Facebook has, um, clear, a clear kind of double standard in terms of how it kind of moderates the content. And of course, there's also been other, it's not just, um, criticism of Israel. Um, there has been attempts where Facebook has, um, banned, um, has, um, moderated, um, protesters of other protesters, like the Indian farmers movement, etc. Yeah, yeah. Although, yeah, they're really in bed with uh, Modi. Absolutely. They're 
they they have moderated a lot of what they they show in India based mm. on the Modi government's um, requirements. You know, he, he they, Facebook seems to have this very close relationship with with Modi, mm. the prime minister. And I kind of wonder, you know, that that's also go links with, I mean, everything we're sort of being talking about from the beginning on this discussion. You know, the fact that Facebook you know, needs um, as many markets as possible, needs as many people to kind of use it. And, of course, they would feel there is certain pressures on Facebook if a, if a government of a big country like India, for example, or the United States um, puts particular pressure on, on Facebook, um, then, yeah, and then and essentially they don't want to upset the governments. Of course, the weird the, – the, the irony with that is um, – um, Facebook is actually upsetting a lot of governments right now. <laughs> like you remember that? Um, just remember that that whole um, the whole the whole um, the whole media code stuff. That yeah, but if, yeah, that did get resolved. They like the governments, you know, what, what is it? They're handing over you know several hundred million dollars or something to Facebook in order to for the news local news companies to. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> but but it is but there is a bit of a consensus that there are. A, a number of capitalist governments who are getting increasingly critical and upset with Facebook, but it's not for any sort of left reason, left wing reason. Mm. It's really on the basis that Facebook is a multinational kind of corporation that is becoming increasingly unaccountable to to governments, and of course to governments. But what they mean by accountable is essentially, you know, a lot of capitalist governments uh, essentially want. Um, don't like the fact that Facebook rep, um, threatens certain interests, um, economic interests that they as a capitalist state might support. So in the case of Australia, it was obviously the Murdoch, um, Murdoch press yeah, in that yeah. instance, but you can definitely observe that that is probably a notable phenomenon. In fact, there's quite a lot of pressure on Facebook from the United States. So, you know, a lot of the liberal kind of press is raising these kind of criticisms of Facebook, but you know, yeah. just like, just like the kind of whistleblower doesn't necessarily, um, it doesn't necessarily want to see Facebook dismantled in terms of her, um, in terms of I guess, her politics. Um, most, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of them are basically arguing for tighter sort of regulations on Facebook, etc. Yeah, well, I do wonder if, like, the the only real threat that Facebook and other corporations like that it has is government regulation, like the um, in the US, uh, they they could be, you know, there is a potential threat that they could be split up, and I think that I don't think. This threat is serious, really, but it's the only thing that could really, you know, it, it's it's an implicit threat. And one way to cozy up to them is to cozy up to the government, because who makes the regulations? It's the uh, it's the people in power, and those people, uh, they tend to be very right leaning. Like if you, add, like the majority of U.S. Congress people are supporters of of Israel, and so one way to curry favour with them is to have a pro-Israel. Um, support on the platform, so I think that that's that's one way that they can <laughs> if they if they get in bed with the the government regulators, then they're set. There's there's not all that many other pressures against them. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a very good point. Anyway, we've just got to um we got we've got to get back time for our first interview. So I'll just go play a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID to no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. 
I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And for our first interview for the program, um, we're very happy to introduce Andrew Shooter. Um, Andrew Shooter is um, an activist with Fix New South Wales, who has um, who has been, um, which is a campaign fighting on New South Wales state issues, standing for people before profit. And Andrew has also been very active as well um, in in um, the campaign against the West Connex, which we've sort of covered on our program previously. And of course. Um, Given that we, um, given this sort of discussion about the state government in New South Wales and Andrew being a kind of consistent sort of campaigner against their policies, um, following the kind of um, resignation of um, Gladius um, Berejiklian as the Premier of New South Wales, um, Andrew has also just recently wrote an article for Green Left titled Gladius Berejiklian Sold Out New South Wales. So good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Jacob. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Now, I guess to kind of um, start off, I guess, this kind of discussion, Andrew, I mean, in contrast to... We've seen, like, ever since Gladius Berichiklian um, resigned, um, as of, I think it was last weekend... Um, there's been all this kind of media sort of appraisal, praising her as this kind of amazing um, premier. It's just a shame she got she lost out because of some corruption charge. And I guess... They didn't even mention that. Oh, yeah. it's, it's Felix here, Andrew. I'm also in the studio. Um, oh, good day. And, um, yeah, I guess, I mean, what, I guess what we can sort of start off this kind of discussion in the light of that, what, what her actual political legacy and track record actually is as a state premier of New South Wales, in your own sort of words and commentary? Um, well, you know, in assessing um, Gladys Berejiklian, you've got to keep in mind that she's been a senior minister um, in the ongoing ten and a half year government of, of, uh, of the Liberal National Government of New South Wales, so for you know roughly we'd say like a third of that time she was the transport minister. For a third of that time she was um, uh, the treasurer, and then for the final third, well actually four, four years, um, you know she's been the, the premier. And so during that time, there's just been uh, the continual smashing of New South Wales. In, in so many ways, um, you know, you've got um, the in, in, the privatise the conversion and privatisation of um, the Northwest Rail Link um, into a, a, a metro um, that was designed um, for the very purpose of privatisation and sale to um, Hong Kong Metro. Um, you've got the building of the of the West Connects, uh, you know, some regarded by experts as the greatest waste of public money on a, on a, on a project um, in Australia's history, the, the motorway. Um, and you've got the sale of the poles and wires that uh, happened under Gladys, uh, under Barry Jicklian's uh, premiership. So um, there's just sales, privatisation, bad decisions um, all through, um, you know, her ten, ten and a half years of being a senior minister and premier. 
Hmm. And I guess um, what um, I wanted to sort of hear a bit more kind of comments on some of the specifics of her kind of legacy. And I, that is, um, and you sort of raised this, I guess, in the argument before you raised in sort of your response, I guess her kind of track record of supporting um, privatisation. And I guess want to hear your sort of um, take on that, and especially in terms of how this links with the economic kind of ideology of neoliberalism. Yeah, well, um, you know, she seems to think, um, as, as the rest of the, the Liberal National Government, that, you know, privatising everything sort of makes it better or more efficient, um, that, you know, um, that, uh, you know, not, not having things in public control, um, you know, is better. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and all of these things are just sold off to, you know, big, uh, liberal donors. So, um, and, and they believe that so strongly that all evidence to the contrary is totally brushed aside, um, and ignored. So, for example, with the, um, Northwest Metro, um, you know, there, transport experts were lining up to say, don't convert Sydney's double-deck rail system to single-deck, you'll just halve the capacity of the number of people. Um, Don't make it, um, you know, incompatible with the existing system. Those trains from that rail line will not be able to work on the rest of it. Um, And there are other reasons, but nevertheless, went totally ahead with it. Um, And... There's so many lies that come around this stuff. You know, you probably, I don't know um, if you heard, you know, you hear the term in Victoria very much of um, asset recycling. I was just going to, yeah, ask about that. That we, 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 we haven't, we don't really experience that in Victoria, but we hear a lot of it from New South Wales. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems to conjure up an environmental aspiration. Oh, recycling, that's good, right? <laughs> what it actually means is privatising a big public asset and then using the money to fund another new project that will be that is specially constructed for the purpose of privatisation. So it privatises what you already got and uses any money that you do have to build more private assets. Um, and that's exactly what happened with the um, sale of Ausgrid. Um, you know the poles and wires in New South Wales that actually happened when when, when Berejiklian was premier. They they said, oh, okay, yeah, we'll sell that, we'll, and then we'll use the money to build infrastructure. But what infrastructure? A private metro, a private toll road. You know, it's just more. It just keeps going on. It never stops. Hmm. And I mean, one of the other things I want to sort of, uh, I want to see here a few kind of other comments because I think you've given a, like a very kind of good overview of um, Gladius's kind of um, real kind of political kind of legacy. And um, I guess. I want to see if you have, I want to hear if you have any kind of comments, I guess, on the ACAC ruling towards Gladius um, Bricotillion, which has been what yeah. um, led to her resignation. But I guess, I mean, I also want to make a comment that, um, in the, in the, in the context of all this sort of media kind of coverage, there's actually been a lot of, you know, attacks on the ACAC, um, yep. including arguing that it should be dismantled. And in fact, one of the weird things, the funny things about it is both sides of politics have been criticizing the ICAC in this, in this period, which is very, I think it's just very funny. It's almost like. Well, it's extremely predictable. <laughs> it's almost like essentially the kind of right wing sort of agenda, really. Um, the right wing push is. Damn it! Why can't politicians be corrupt anymore? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, well, 
um, you know, Vera Jicklin should have resigned a year ago um, when, you know, she was first uh, put uh, under questioning in ICAC um, because, you know, when it was discovered that she was in a secret relationship with one of her ministers, uh, Daryl Maguire. Uh, Daryl Maguire is the member for Wagga, yet he was trying to organise property deals in in the inner city, in you know, like in um, Canterbury Bankstown area of Sydney, and um, you know, it came to light that she that that he he was you know doing all of these dodgy corrupt deals, um, but Berejiklian had been going out with him for five years uh, in secret. And phone tap conversations came out that showed her, him trying to tell her about all his dodgy deals, and she's going, oh, I don't need to know about that, Daryl. I mean... It's the dumbest level thing, of corruption. <laughs> you know, it's like um, people um, uh, think that, you, you know, you, you, you should be able to get away with this. I mean, this is just absurd. Uh, and people... One thing that Gladys did was she played this kind of, uh, you know, uh, damsel in distress type card. I mean, if you want to think that, that Berejiklian was somebody who, um, you know, was, was advanced the cause of migrants or, or mono- of women, um, yet she was so straight away she played this, oh, I'm poor, defenceless, not very attractive, um, uh, you know, needing needing a man to help me kind of thing, and I was... I was giddy and in love, and so I, I turned a blind eye to all the things that Daryl Maguire did. I mean, what a massive step backwards for women, and, and, you know, it's just that she would use that as an excuse. But, I mean, from my kind of interpretation of that, I mean, it's not, it's not, that, it's not that she is a damsel in distress necessarily. It is actually just her trying to play that for her own kind of political gain. Just purely to hang on, like... It, it, the writing was on the wall. We, I think we could all really see that her, her days are numbered. Like, I, I thought so when all this stuff came out. And yeah. she was just trying to, like, buy time or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, and then when, when she did, um, uh, re, you know, resign just on Friday last week, she said, oh, it's terrible, it's right in the middle of a pandemic, right? And what bad timing. Mm. Yet, when, when she was, when this stuff first came to light a year ago, the, the pandemic was somewhat in abeyance. Uh, in New South Wales, we were kind of on a, on a high. So if she was thinking that, well, is there a good time to resign? It would have been then. But no, she she persisted on with this thing. And uh, just back to your point about ICAC, yeah, there's been all of these attackers now. Um, when really it 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 doesn't have the power to prosecute. It's merely doing an investigation. It's doing its job uh, quite well. Yet under um, uh, successive Liberal governments, its funding has been decreased. So you can see the real agenda there is that they want to um, shrink it and make it go away and don't let anybody think for a moment that it could be a successful thing so that um, the pressure is not on Scott Morrison to um, introduce it at a national level, a federal ICAC, which we desperately need. Um, so there was all of this kind of attack straight away to quash that possibility of a federal ICAC and, and deny that it's been... ICAC is very popular. You know, in New South Wales, there are stickers on, bump, on bumper stickers on people's cars. We heart ICAC. You know, I love ICAC. People love it up here. It's fantastic. So, you know, we, we, we want one 
in it for the whole country. Thank you very much. It's definitely it's envious. Like we're very we we could definitely do with something like that mm. in Victoria. <laughs> well, actually, I wanted to um since we do have a bit of time to um ask this kind of question, and you don't have to go into complete kind of detail about it. Yeah. But I mean, I wanted to just see a um we kind of mentioned just COVID nineteen response, and I mean, I mean, it's it it seems like we might as well have a have a bit of a comment you know because this has been the thing that has um because one of the things about the COVID-19 pandemic has been is that it makes politicians look good for some bizarre reason uh essentially when politicians are responsible for handling a kind of crisis people already instantly kind of throw out their critical facilities when when they're assessing politicians um so I guess I want to kind of hear do you have any kind of comments on Gladius's actual kind of response to the COVID pandemic as she was um, premier, acting premier? Yeah, well, um, let's cast our mind back um, to March of last year. Um, during February, the Diamond Princess cruise ship um, was pulled into port in Yokohama, Japan, and everybody on board was immediately, you know, um, you know, held there in quarantine uh, until all the suspected cases, you know, all the all the suspected cases were put into hospital, um, and and it was a, quite a number of weeks, wasn't it, before people were allowed um, off that ship. It was very carefully handled, and the whole world was watching that. Yet one month later, the Ruby Princess was allowed to dock in Sydney with like seven or eight cases, which later turned out to be 700 cases. And to all 2,700 people on board that ship were allowed to get off and just walk around in circular key and, and, and spread around the country. Yeah, yeah um, interstate as well. So that was 10% of Australia's whole entire caseload at the time and ended up resulting in 28 deaths. So, um, you know, that was a massive, massive blunder that should have seen a couple of ministers or the Premier resign. But, you know, nothing of that sort happened. Yeah, it does seem that she's quite untouchable. And I, th- I think, like, from my perspective here, is um, she's got the year of the Murdoch press, and yeah. when that happens, it's just no criticism can stick. Because they're the ones, they're the ones who are in charge of the um, the outrage machine. And if yeah. if you if you don't have any outrage against you, you're kind of fine. <laughs> you know, every trick in the book is pulled out to defend Gladys on on on, on that. You know, and um, um, it should be noted that actually the total number of cases in New South Wales of COVID is double. It's sixty six thousand as at today. Um, in total over the period of the pandemic, where it's uh, something like 30,000 in Victoria. So, um, you know, that should be borne in mind. Now, admittedly, um, Victoria has had more deaths, but perhaps that um, might be uh, attributed to um, that, you know, we, we're having our worst phase here in New South Wales at the same time as so many people are vaccinated. Yeah, particularly so, the old, um, old and vulnerable people. That, that is it. But um, also, there's a lot of hypocrisy in the lockdowns here. I mean, a lot of the cases that have emerged in New South Wales have come from, you know, um, the wealthier areas, the east and the north, where people seem to be freely allowed to circulate um, on Bondi Beach and Manly Beach, um, and uh, then in Avalon, and then they spread they spread out from there. But the moment you get one case 
in um, southwest of Sydney. Well, it's lockdowns galore for for all of the the workers in southwest Sydney. Right. I didn't realise that the the um, lockdown apartheid was so strong. Yeah, it 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 is very strong, particularly in southwest Sydney. And and the cases are actually um, they're they're quite bad in the wealthy areas. That's I hadn't hadn't realised. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and it's not that those people might be more mobile. I mean, you know, the, that, there was a whole string of cases that were spread. Um, yeah, I don't know if you um, heard about it, but it was like a guy who was involved with barbecues galore, and he was going around every barbecue oh, yeah, we did door in, in Sydney, <laughs> and 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 spread and spread um, spread the virus all, all throughout Sydney. And uh, yeah, and we also had we had our own sort of mini public housing lockdown just about three weeks ago. Uh, it was actually in an affordable housing complex called Common Ground in Camperdown. Um, and, you know, the police were, were just opening people's, um, you know, food orders and only allowing one beer a day uh, into the people in that building. It was incredibly punitive. It just wouldn't happen. There's no way it would happen to people in an ordinary um, private um, unit block. So why it had to happen for people in affordable housing is beyond me. Yeah, we, we yeah. did actually interview. Yeah, yeah, we did a bit of interview. Actually, I might move on to the kind of next question, but I'll just make one comment before I move on to the last kind of question we'll sort of get to ask. Yeah. Um, basically, I mean, just one kind of comment on that. I mean, I think one of the things about the Gladios sort of COVID-19 response was, um, you know, Obviously, there's the whole kind of issue of the fact. I mean, there's a lot of criticism of Gladios for, you know, not kind of locking down early enough, etc. Although that yeah. said, some recent developments in Victoria actually sort of show that might not necessarily be the most rally critique. But, of course, yeah. I think it does. Ref- we need to sort of reflect a bit more critically on that. Mm. But I guess the actual thing, thing you can hang COVID, um, the COVID response on Gladios is the fact that, you know, really this kind of disproportionate kind of police kind of response. There was also the fact that, um, you know, the fact that really, um, for the most of the part, um, when it came to, um, you know, their, their, their whole, the way they applied their lockdown, you know, if they, if they were to make a more a kind of effective lockdown, it should have been the same rules for everyone, not just have different rules for different people based on... On their class. Based on their <laughs> class or based on, on what, which electorate they are. Because it, it does feel disproportionately um, people who weren't Liberal voters got the worst at it because really a lot of those LG um, lo- local government areas that were locked out, they generally were Labor-supported heartlands. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I would suspect that it goes beyond just like the political calculation and it is totally class-based. It's <laughs> like we deserve better and they deserve to be kicked around. Yeah, but now going into the kind of next kind of question, um, and this is kind of a, a bit on um, probably the last kind of question we can sort of ask and you can feel free to sort of make your kind of final comments because now... We've been talking about really the legacy of Gladius um, Berejiklian, and really now she's actually resigned. And this is a classic thing about the nature of capitalism. You lo- you, uh, you rightfully someone gets gets the boot for um, being corrupt. Now we think, oh, that's yeah. a bit of a victory under capitalism. But then yeah. all of a sudden, there it appears. Um, Gladius is now replaced with this with someone even more right wing than her. Um, Dominic, yeah, well, Gladys is supposed pe- to be a moderate. <laughs> yeah, um, Dominic Perret or Perret or Perret. And I guess um, she he is now served as her replacement. And I guess what are your kind of comments on on this? Yeah, well, um, you know, it's as though we get punished for exposing corruption. You're not allowed to do that. 
because we've got someone in the wings who's even worse than what you you currently have. Mm. You know? um, so, you know, people were kind of reluctant to punish um, Berejiklian's uh, corruption because of who is waiting in the wings. Well, look, I say bring it on um, because Perrottet, um it probably will be worse, but at least hopefully we won't have the illusion that he's a nice person. Or if he's a nice guy. Oh, an accelerationist, that, I like that. <laughs> you know, well, what I mean is they get, the way the, it works in the, the New South in New South Wales is a four year term, it's fixed length, there's there's little to no chance of, you know, having a, a, a state election unless the the Governor General um, you know, declares it and, and all of that sort of stuff. So um basically at least um I I hope that People with his with Perrottet, the new premier, being a Trump supporter, being um, a right wing um, anti abortion, you know, um, supporter, um, that um, at least people might sort of be a bit more critical of the things that he does compared to um, how critical they were of Gladys Berejiklian. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. A lot, of, a lot of people liked a lot of Gladys Berejiklian's story for her, you know, who she was, the Armenian migrant, uh, female yep. premier, and like a supposed model, moder- moderate, sorry, in the uh, Liberal Party, mm. and it blinded them to in- the incredibly right-wing and reactionary politics that she actually has, and especially as you were saying with the neoliberal privatizations. Um, we we do some need someone who's Sort of represents the politics that they really have, so maybe that you know, that will help. Yeah. What? Well, of course, I'm not. Uh, I said it was funny. Yeah, you said accelerationist. Of course, uh, accelerationist. I don't hope to bring on things worse in the past, but what I hope is that it, that that at least he's he's limited or curtailed in some ways, so people won't give him a free pass yeah, in the I, way that they <laughs> seem to give Berejiklian in a free pass. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. Um, we'll, it remains to be seen how he'll go. There are some more moderate people in his party, like Matt Keane and Rob Stokes, uh, around him um, that may uh, curtail some of the things that uh, he would like to do. Um, but uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I don't put my hope on that. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be. We shouldn't have our standards so low that we should. That we're happy as long as somebody is not the worst. You know, we shouldn't go, oh, that's the worst. You know, or, or Gladys wasn't the worst. Well, man, it's still very far below what would be good or what would be expected or required if you were actually acting in the people's interest. And I think just to, you know, round out this point is, is that I think fundamentally the politics are the same. Gladys Berejiklian, yeah. Dominic Perrottet, all of those leaders are all in the right-wing ruling class, their politics are almost identical. And it's just some surface, superficial differences between them that people get really caught up in. And it's kind of irrelevant how they present themselves. Yeah, that's just um, they're just squabbling over the details of yep. how best to sell out New South Wales. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, you know if, if, if your motives are bad, I actually hope that you're not good at doing it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and Gladys, by that, was very good 
at doing bad things. Mm, and that's yep. the only sense in which you might say that she was good. She was very, she, she worked extremely hard to achieve bad results. That's right. That's why John Howard is my least favourite Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, um, thank you very much, Angel. We're, but I'm probably getting a bit out of time, but I think you um, have made a lot of great sort of. Um, this has been a very great kind of discussion on on I think the legacy of Gladius and Berichik yeah. especially in contrast to all the kind of mainstream sort of foot, um, coverage that we have been getting on her sort of legacy. Um, so yeah. yeah, thank you very much um, for being our program, Andrew. Yeah, oh, thanks, thank Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. And Jacob, I just love the way that you handle Barry Jicklian so well, but uh, mess up Gladys. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should I should have been remember I should have been remember I should remember that her name first name is actually pronounced in a similar way to um, I forgot what it was, but um, there was a, there's another thing called Gladius, but yeah. <laughs> oh, you might be thinking of Gladys, the um, the uh, you know Barry Humphreys uh, flower that he was always talking about that Dave Mender Everidge always has a, a, a posy of gladys, you know, gladiolized flowers. So, anyway. don't think Jacob would remember that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, um, again, okay, thank, thank you, Rach, Andrew. And, um, yeah, all the best with your continuous campaigning against the New South Wales state government policy. Okay, will do. Thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. Bye. All right, so we're just speaking to Andrew Shooter, who is um, who is a, a long-time activist um, in New South Wales um, against the kind of West Connacht and was also part of forming Fix New South Wales, which was essentially a state government, not a state government, I mean, essentially a campaign, a broad sort of campaign uh, against the state government's sort of privatisation of um, public assets. So, yeah. Anyway, I might just go play, I'll play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And I thought for the next kind of part of the program, um, we'll play a bit of a pre-recording from an online forum that was organised by Green Left, which was organised on Tuesday, the 28th of September, titled No Nuclear Submarines, Voices for a Nuclear-Free Indo-Pacific. And so we'll get to play, um, I think, the first speech from this um, public forum, which was a speech by Maureen uh, Maureen. Um, Pedro Jun, who's the court, who was a coordinator of the Pacific Network on Globalization, known as PANG. Um, so yeah, hope um, listeners enjoy. And I think also our presenter Chloe also in, um, facilitated um, this session, so you might um, hear her kind of introduce her. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. One, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast. We give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Thanks for joining this recording of the No Nuclear Submarines Public Forum, organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance and held on Tuesday the 28th of September. It was recorded on stolen Aboriginal land. The meeting begins with Chairperson Chloe De Silva 
introducing speakers? Yep. Uh, so the three speakers we have tonight uh, is Maureen Penjueli. Uh She's the coordinator of uh, coordinator and Pacific of the Pacific Network on Globalization or PANG. And then we have Joe uh, Carolan uh, from Socialist uh, Aotea Roa and Unite Union Senior Organizer. And then we have uh, Felix Dads, a climate activist and civil engineer and Socialist Alliance member. Uh, the speakers will each um, speak for about 10 minutes or so, and then we'll open the meeting up for questions and discussions. So we'll... We'll just get started with our first speaker, um, Maureen, if you're, if you're ready. Uh, good evening. A very warm Bulavinaka from Silva, Fiji. And, uh, really, uh, thank you to the organizers, the Green Left and the Socialist Alliance for this invitation to participate tonight on what is emerging, uh, to be a highly controversial, uh, set of discussions, uh, around AUKUS. Um, I have a, a, a PowerPoint presentation. It's partly just to help me stick uh, to the timeframes that we've been allocated. Uh, I had initially thought we had about 15 minutes, but 10 minutes is fine. Um, and I really wanted to just acknowledge the presence of a lot of the anti-nuclear uh, and free Pacific uh, activists that are present in the, I can see lots of familiar faces. Uh, and so it's really wonderful to see them uh, join online um, uh, this evening. Um, we should, what I'd like to attempt to do is really to locate and contextualize AUKUS. Um, it's one of several defense and security uh, packs. Next slide, please. Uh, you know, this is not the first time that the Pacific region is faced with nuclear threats or nuclear injustice. Uh, we have a region that has a long history of enduring colonization by nuclear powered states. Um, if you look at the history, it includes the US, Britain and France and the role of Australia with the nuclear powered alliances. Um, we know that uh, during the colonial era and up until today, most of the territories in the Pacific has given all of these countries significant ocean power uh, through these territories in the Pacific. And I think that's quite important when we think through the implications of AUKUS today. Uh, we should view AUKUS uh, as one of the most recent uh, in a long history of peace and security alliances and defense pacts uh, between nuclear powered states um, that have systematically, in my view, kept the Pacific Ocean and its people at the tip of nuclear arms race, nuclear war and warmongering, and the enabling military infrastructure under the pretext of peace and security. Uh, if you look at AUKUS, I've really just highlighted the A, Australia, the role of Australia. We understand the significance of the UK post-practice uh, Brexit and its real attempt to re-establish global Britain um, today. So I think in that context, we really can see the posturing of the UK in this part of the world again. Um, US obviously seeks to maintain global dominance through its military and defense position in response to what we are told is a common enemy. Um, and this is despite Pacific Island government's foreign policies, which have been very articulate and makes clear 
that our countries are friends to all and enemies to none. And the long history of diplomatic relationships that our countries have with China, uh, most of it dating back to independence of independent uh, Pacific Island states, perhaps with the exception of the Northern Pacific countries. Um, next slide, please. Uh, again, there's this really understanding the wider narrative that Australia plays quite significantly in the region, the strategic use of infrastructure development, development and financing, uh, aid in particular also, but in relation to deep water ports. So I think again, you know, even if we want to just look at this through the lens of nuclear powered submarines, it's always useful to keep an eye on the role that Australia plays uh, in terms of infrastructure development and financing. Uh, we look at the strategic bases in the Pacific and the Long Brum Naval Base in Manus. Our province has certainly regained the interest of the U.S. and Australia. Uh, we know that in just this year, a um, couple of months ago, the Australian Defence Force allocated $175 million to upgrade that particular base. The Australian company won that bid, and obviously U.S. naval personnel are involved in the upgrade of the Manus uh, Lombrum Naval Base. Uh, here is the statement by the PNG Defense Force Major uh, General Toropo, and he says that the upgrade would, be, would significantly improve PNG's maritime security capabilities uh, given China's growing presence in the region, uh, presenting both PNG and the rest of the Pacific with this, this new threat by China. In the landscape of defense and security alliances and pacts, again, this is not the first time the Pacific governments and citizens haven't been consulted, despite the fact that the majority of our countries are now independent sovereign island states. Unlike when we first encountered the nuclear history and testing, most of the countries were under colonial rule at that time. So this is not the first time that our governments uh, have been caught by surprise by such announcements of PACs that are, that present specific governments and citizens as beneficiaries, mere spectators without agency. Um, so I, I suppose in many ways this announcement is presented, we have a common enemy, this is in the interest of both peace and security of Pacific Island countries, uh, and this is really, really in Pacific Island people's uh, interest to do so. So how do we respond, organize to the hyper-militarization of the Pacific Ocean? Uh, when we look at the, the hyper-militarization, it includes long history of nuclear weapons test, nuclear radioactive waste shipments, uh, proposals for nuclear storage and disposal, nuclear-powered submarines, ballistic missiles test, war games, uh, and increasingly foreign naval bases uh, being set up in sovereign territories in the Pacific. So, you know, we, we do have uh, just a reminder that this is with not without um, Pacific people and long history of resistance and mobilizing to achieve a vision of a nuclear-free and independent Pacific. So, I mean, for many of us on this call tonight and viewers, we, we really understand the testing legacy in the Pacific by the United States, Britain, and France, uh, the various different programs. Uh, the Pacific Ocean remains highly strategic uh, in terms of defense 
uh, and military interest. Uh, the Pacific Ocean has been proving grounds, the theater of war. Uh, the U.S. has conducted 67 atomic and hydrogen bomb tests in Bikini and Anadotok atolls in RMI and in the Northern Pacific. Next slide, please. I'm going to try and skip very quickly in terms of the history. Obviously, Britain, uh, its test in Christmas Island uh, in Middle Pacific, if you like, from 1952 to 1957. And then, of course, France with one of the largest, 193 atmospheric and underground tested Mororoa and Fungatofa atolls in French-occupied Polynesia. Again, you see lots of these imageries. These are quite famous pictures of resistance across the Pacific uh, to bring an end to nuclear testing in the region. Uh, next slide, please. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from the formidable visionary uh, leaders of the NFIP movement that we can apply to the hyper-militarized state and the kinds of security defense pact that the region is currently faced with. Um, again, protests, uh, very strong uh, interactions between Pacific Rim countries, Australia, New Zealand, and uh, Pacific Island countries, quite diverse in movements, churches, trade unions, academics, students, women's groups, indigenous leaders, actively opposing the test, and subsequently uh, nuclear transport or shipment of nuclear waste through the region, uh, nuclear-powered submarines. Um, so it has been quite a vibrant uh, and very important movement, movement in the Pacific, but also globally, to make the Pacific a nuclear-free um, region. Again, these are some of the critical groups, and again, they are some of the founding members on this call tonight, on this webinar tonight. Um, these are some of the new movements that are emerging. Uh, one of the key things is really how do we transfer intergenerational knowledge uh, in terms of resistance? How do we build a resilient movement uh, across the Pacific? Uh, this is some of the key movements that have really taken up uh, the vision of the nuclear and free and independent Pacific, really calling for nuclear ways, not nuclear ways. Uh, youth movements such as the Young Solwara Pacific, uh, the Marshall Island Students Association, Mesa for the Pacific, really have continued the legacy of nuclear justice activism in the Pacific. This is just some slides of some of the actions that they've taken, uh, both targeting Pacific Island states, uh, but also nuclear uh, powered uh, states and nations also, including Australia. Again, this is just, just a show of um, a lot of the solidarity actions that they've taken of many different issues. This is on the Runit Don, uh, again, one of those historical legacy issues that's still remaining in the Pacific. Uh, this is the most recent one in which the uh, under President Oscar Temaru, there was a call out to the Pacific to stand with French-occupied uh, Polynesia, uh, and particularly the struggle for um, France to begin the long journey to address, acknowledge the nuclear legacy, and begin the long road to reparation, uh, restoration, and justice for the people of Maui Nui. So we've seen a very strong reaction by uh, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. 
um, really affirming New Zealand's long-standing nuclear-free policy. And also, what does, what does it mean for this new announcement of Australian submarines being developed? Um, and I think her position, she makes a position very clear, um, which is that New Zealand's position in relation to the prohibition of nuclear-powered vessel remains unchanged and is banned within New Zealand's waters. Uh, Fiji's Prime Minister also challenged in his uh, speech at the UN's 76th General Assembly, calling on world leaders, um, and in particular uh, taking a shot at AUKUS, saying that if you can spend trillions of dollars on missiles, drones and nuclear submarines, surely you can find climate actions. A reflection of the significant differences in terms of how we interpret security, uh, what is key priorities for security for Pacific Island countries uh, in, a, in a recognition of what AUKUS is proposing. So obviously climate, climate actions, uh, climate emergency is the top in terms of human uh, security for Pacific Island countries. Um, next slide. Uh, again, this is really, really where uh, there's lots of concerns that the kinds of financing um, for this deal under AUKUS would really deviate from where Pacific priorities sit, which is to address the climate uh, crisis, the decline in ocean health. Uh, this remains key priorities for Pacific Island leaders, but also um, uh, activists and movements at large. Obviously, there's a real emphasis around COVID-19 recovery and certainly rebuilding um, Pacific people's resilience um, and not kinds of investments we're seeing going into uh, AUKUS. So the basis of some of our real significant strength, I think, at the moment really lies in the Rarotonga Treaty. Um, I think this is one of the bases that we have to think about how we leverage uh, given that Australia is a party to the Rarotonga Treaty, obviously this is in addition to the uh, TW, uh, the Treaty on Prohibitions of uh, Nuclear Weapons, of which the Pacific states, independent states, constitutes the majority at this state. So it's over 50 uh, state, member states have, have signed and ratified the treaty, of which uh, a fifth of that is constitutes the Pacific. So I think we need to think through what does the Rarotonga Treaty mean? How do we try to bring it into force, uh, given Australia's role as a, a signatory to the Rarotonga Treaty um, to address, to resolve some of these complexities around uh, AUKUS that, that Australia signed on? And these are some of the key things just to keep in mind uh, that the nuclear, the Rarotonga Treaty office, it's quite um extensive in its geographical scope. Uh, it is one of two uh, nuclear-free zones, uh, in addition to the one in Latin America. Um, it contributes to nuclear non-proliferation and disarmament, um, and it certainly is being brought into life by uh, Pacific Island leaders. It's a mandated that, and, and starting the work, the long work, of ensuring a nuclear-free uh, Pacific um, so I think that there, this is something that perhaps in discussion we need to think through. How do we bring this to life uh, and how do we make this work in, in defense of Pacific people's interest uh, and security? 
again, we're really seeing this is some of the new trends to monitor in terms of the security defense packs. Uh, certainly, Australia's step up in the Northern Pacific. Uh, we've seen Australia open up diplomatic missions in Marshall Islands and Palau. Uh, Australia is part of this ongoing um, large-scale warfare exercises in the Pacific Ocean. Um, so, you know, this is this is really understanding Australia's uh, security defense interest and how it's using bilateral and strengthening of its bilateral relationships with the Northern Pacific. Again, just to come back to this whole uh, fact that most of this defense and security packs that are announced really is about the Pacific, but never with the Pacific. So we're never, our, our governments are not consulted, um, and certainly citizens of the Pacific have never been consulted, but I assume that this is all done for world peace, uh, for our security, and certainly for the common good of all mankind. Um, and so I think we need to be rethinking the regional uh, architecture, um, Pacific Islands Forum in particular, uh, the role of the Fiji government as the current chair of the Pacific Islands Forum uh, in trying to get security defense packs to go through a consultative process with sovereign states in the region. Um, I think this would really work well, uh, considering the kinds of announcements that's catching many of our governments by surprise, that's unilaterally uh, being announced. And so I think we need to really consider where processes for consultations need to take place within the regional architecture um, Okay, so I've really, really gone over time. Apologies, Chloe. I think I'm just towards the end. That's okay. Take your time. Thanks, Maureen. So just, just to really emphasize, the, the and again, about this framework called the Indo-Pacific Strategy, this is a framework that does not include Pacific Island states nor its citizens. This is a framework that is negotiated and signed on by extern, external uh, powers um, so it's not about the Pacific. It's always about China, uh, despite the fact that our governments have made very strong and clear uh, diplomatic announcements about our relationship with China. Thank you. I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your presentation, Maureen. I'm sure everyone found that very useful. Um, the voices from the Pacific are so important. Uh, and just a reminder, all the speakers will have more opportunities to speak throughout the meeting. So have your questions ready um, I can see some uh, come through the chat, so um, I'll pass those on to the speakers so they can respond a bit later. Um, and we also have quite a few peace activists from interstate online, and I think um, there are a few people from different parts of the Pacific um, here. So a very warm welcome to all of you. I'd like to now introduce our second speaker for tonight, uh, Joe. All right, you're just listening to Green Left. Um, you're just listening to a speech by Maureen um, um, Panaraji. And um, yeah, so that is from the online forum No Nuclear Subs, Voices for um, a Nuclear Free um, Pacific, which was organised by Green Left in September. Now, um, I might just go play a quick um, announcement and then we'll go on to the Green Left radio activist calendar. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. 
The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand You could never understand Feel the fortune flowing You know it isn't stuck All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. And now it is time for the Green Left Activist Calendar um, to tell you about some upcoming events that are going to be happening. Now, the first kind of event I want to sort of highlight is um, on Saturday, October the 9th, there's going to be an online forum organised by Free Palestine Melbourne, which is titled How Do We Win in Palestine? And that's going to be happening at 4pm on Saturday, October the 9th. And then there's going to be an online, another online forum, um, which is happening on 8, um, 8 p.m., um, organised by the Islamic Council of Victoria, titled International Witness Campaign. And this is essentially a panel kind of discussion on the impacts of the war on terror, kind of um, the the war on terror, and includes um, and it actually includes some um, really interesting speakers. So I think if you check, if you go into the Facebook page of Islamic Council of Victoria, you'll be able to kind of get a link to the Zoom link and everything. Now, the next kind of event I want to sort of highlight is um, there's going to be an online forum Tuesday, October the 12th, um, the UN's responsibility towards Western Sahara, Africa's last colony, and that's going to be happening at 7pm at um, on, on October, Tuesday, October the 12th. And then on Wednesday, October the 13th, um, there's going to be... Uh, well, actually, I'll go skip ahead to this one. There's going to be an online... On Friday, October the 15th, there's going to be an online climate strike. And, yeah, you, it's organised by School Strike for Climate, so different sort of regions, etc. And then the next kind of major event I sort of want to uh, mention is the Eco-Socialism 2021 conference, which is going to be happening from October the 22nd to October the 24th. And it's going to be a mostly online conference. Um, well, it is going to be, have to be online in the case of Melbourne. And you can get um, details on the agenda at ecosocialism.org.au. And it features a number of, um, it features two days of workshops and panels featuring local and international speakers. And of course, the program includes, includes the opening night session on Friday, Friday, October 22nd, Capitalism is in Crisis, Eco-Socialist Feminists Fight Back. And that's going to include um, even uh, include um, com- um, socialists from, um, from, um, from Ireland, um, India and um, Kurdistan. And then there's going to be, um, there's also going to, we're also going to be featuring Why Eco-Socialism, a session on eco-socialism, workers' rights in the age of, of COVID-19, and then Stop the Australian War Drive, Arkas and the Campaign Against China. So yeah, that's some of the different kind of events that are going to be happening as part of the Eco-Socialism 2021 conference. So definitely recommend, um, you check out the conference. All right. Well, I might just go play, I'll play, um, I'll play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. 
a 3CR supporter. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And, um, for the next part of the discussion for the rest of the program, we're going to, um, go and sort of discuss kind of different sort of news stories from the pages of Green Left. Now, but the first kind of thing I kind of just want to mention, um, just, um, give a bit of a plug for, um, a, a film I had, have actually just watched, which is actually, um, available on Netflix. Um, and this is a, this is, um, if you're into, if you're interested in, in kind of, um, horror kind of filmmaking, um, this is, um, a very interesting kind of film. I'm just getting the title of it now because I frequently confuse the title. Oh, house, just wait. See? Uh, sorry. Um, just, just a second. Um, okay. So the film is actually called, um, your, I think it was, <laughs> Your house. <laughs> I keep confusing it. This is a great recommendation, Jacob. Loving it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, ah, here it is. Okay, so it's a, a basically um, the film is called His House, and it is essentially um, a horror, um, a supernatural kind of horror kind of film that essentially revolves around a refugee couple who has essentially made a harrowing escape from war town, war torn South Sudan, but then of course. There's the kind of struggle to kind of adjust to their life in, in an English town. So essentially they get, um, the, the premise is actually a, re- it's a very pro-refugee kind of film that actually is a horror film that actually draws on the experiences of being a refugee. And I think in, in, in that instance, it is a very effective and very kind of well kind of done film. Um, it essentially depicts the kind of bureaucratization of the immigration system. It, it, it depicts the kind of injustice of, of it. Um, because essentially, you know, um, it revolves around a refugee couple who they get, they get, um, they get allocated commission kind of housing. Um, and of course the house is completely kind of run down, almost looks unlivable. And of course, in the context of it being a horror film, um, obviously lots of interesting kind of supernatural and horror, terrifying sort of developments happen within his house. So yeah, I'll have to give it, a, I'll give it a very, um, having watched it recently, I'll give it a very kind of strong kind of recommendation. Um, given that it's a rabble on Netflix, everyone is probably most, a lot of people, our listeners probably do have a, access to a Netflix account. So I definitely recommend, um, checking it out. It is definitely a very good kind of horror film in the kind of vein of, you know, horror, um, recent sort of horror films that has been a source of social commentary, like Jordan Peele's Get Out, which, um, people have, are probably familiar with. Just like sort of Get Out had, um, captured the sort of horror of, of race, um, racism and, um, racial oppression in the United States. And, his house um, manages to do that, but more for more contextualized around the refugee experience. And of course, the the the, the film as well. One of the best parts about the film, um, without giving any real spoilers, is I think it has a very empowering kind of ending, um, an ending that is ultimately puts forward a very positive kind of political message. Because yeah. Because sometimes, you know, when it comes to films depicting the refugee kind of experience, there can sometimes be, it can come, it can basically, there can be sometimes a bit, there can be some problematic sort of depictions of that kind of experience, especially when it's done by a sort of Hollywood white sort of filmmaker. This is not the case with His House, which is actually directed by um, someone, um, by a person of colour, but at the same time, it is actually a film that actually 
sensitively captures the experience in a very authentic kind of way. So, yeah, definitely give it my a good recommendation, his house. All right. So now the next kind of thing is I want to sort of start maybe maybe a bit maybe we'll start a bit of a discussion about um some uh, a news story from green left and now this is a bit of a good uh, a, a bit of a good news kind of story but this is a basically revolves around um this is a, from an article titled new south wales rail unions fight for conditions now to give a brief report on this um the combined rail train rail unions and the rail tram and bus union rtbu are continuing protected um industrial action in New South Wales as negotiations for a new New South Wales trains and Sydney trains, um, uh, New South Wales trains and Sydney trains <laughs> enterprise agreement um, um, break, break down. The union's industrial action was precipitated by the stubborn Sydney and New South Wales trains management, which wants the unions to agree to a rollover of the EA for six months. This would mean workers accepting a, a zero um, 0.3% pay rise and then 2.5% thereafter. The unions are essentially demanding a 3.5% pay rise. Management has refused to meet for, with the delegates to hear their log of claims. It has not shown up to recent negotiation meetings. And essentially, um, there's this clear sort of um, divide and rule tactic being applied by the bosses in this instance. So essentially what, what, is, what is happening is management wants to split New South, Sydney trains and New South Wales train workers and negotiate separate agreements, um, which, is, which, is kind of, um, which is, I think, very kind of telling. Um, the, the unions have rejected this, arguing that we need to have a combined um, EA, um, enterprise agreement. And the unions are also concerned about safety on Sydney trains on the new interseat, interseat flight. Platforms and doors can be monitored by the driver using CCTV um, cameras, allowing for the possibility of eliminating train guards. Unions say this is unsafe and that a guard is required to monitor the platform during the train's arrival and departure. The unions also want boosted cleaning staff on after the um, COVID-19 crisis to ensure that the current high level of cleaning for passengers and workers continue, which I think is a very reasonable kind of claim because, you know, if the, if the government is essentially pushing a sort of living with COVID strategy, and in fact, that's really a foregone conclusion as far as we're kind of concerned, why the, the bosses and the governments have to be prepared to to be paying for this, especially given that we haven't completely got 100% of the population vaccinated. And, um, and of course, there's also, um, beginning in kind of early sent, um, in, in September, you know, there has been, um, examples of workers undertaking overtime, um, bans, bans on working dues, work to rules, sit down working and driving trains that reduce seed. And of course, the unions took, um, took strike action on September 28th from 9am to 1pm on all railroads on all rail networks, um, and they said that their hand had been forced by management's unwillingness to negotiate. And, of course, the action was chosen to reduce the effect on essential workers who rely on trains to get to work. And I guess the other thing is the RTBU New South Wales branch held an open online stop work meeting during the strike, inviting uh, member workers and others to so, um, show support. And, of course, there was good solidarity shown from the ACTU, the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association, Unions New South Wales, and Professionals Australia, which is actually your union, Felix. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and I think the other, the other kind of thing is, um, to kind of note is, is essentially... Um, 
the coming um the the the, the, the essentially the meeting kind of essentially had endor- um passed a motion that of endorsement saying that our membership endorses the action that has been taken so far by the union and in, and endor- and then resolves to support taking whatever future action is necessary to ensure our rights are upheld if we get the respect we deserve. And so essentially, you know, in the coming kind of weeks, the union is going to be campaigning for um, and going to be preparing for further sort of action. And of course, the union's kind of main EA proposals are access to two 26 weeks paid parental leave for any primary carer, regardless of gener- um, gender. Superannuation has to be paid for time spent on parental leave. Critical incident leave for all employees, including exposure to a traumatic incident or near miss. And of course, removal, removal, remove the requirement for shift workers to provide medical certificates that adjourn public holidays. So yeah, there's actually quite a lot of claims actually here. Um, so I'm not going to be necessarily have time to read them all. So if you go onto the Green Left website, um, go for the article, New South Wales Rail Unions Fight for Conditions, you can get read kind of more detail. But essentially, just to give a bit of a plug, there is a petition um, um, which you can, um, I can, you can sign, which is demanding it stop management from targeting rail union delegates involved in this um, uh, enterprise bargaining um, agree, um, process. So, yeah, that's just a bit of kind of summary. Cool. Yeah, well, I, th- I think that um, this is emblematic in a lot of the ways of the, the struggles at the moment, because obviously the management, are, they're trying every, everything they can for cost cutting. So firstly, they're, they're only offering 0.3% pay rise for the first year, which is abysmal, and the union's demanding 3.5%. And then they're trying to get rid of, well, it seems likely that they might try to get rid of the guards, which is more cost-cutting and reduce the cleaning. And the union's fighting for both their rights and also the safety of the community that they serve. And it's incredibly difficult to uh, have strike actions in under today's laws with WorkSafe, um, with um, sorry, um, what's the agency called that Julia Gillard brought in the uh, the uh, replacement for work choices? Um, that you, you can only have industrial action during negotiations of enterprise bargaining, and also it uh, it, it can't spill over into other issues. It has to be confined to um, to wages and it it's just really restricts the amount of industrial action that unions can take these days so whenever it does happen it's it's really good and we should all support it yeah okay well i might just play i'll play a quick announcement and um, we'll go on to another news story you're listening to green left radio If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to you can call the wellways helpline Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. 
And for our program, I wanted to um, the next kind of pro- um, news story to talk and um, report on. And this is I'm um, drawing for another kind of article from Green Left. And I guess this has been another kind of example of I think our government's um, you know reflective of our of our federal government's kind of COVID response and how you know essentially they are putting profit um, before um, people. And that, um, and this relates to kind of like the interests, um, to the interests to the question of prisoners and COVID-19. And this is kind of like drawing on this article, which is titled Prisoners Are Sitting Ducks for COVID-19. I'm starting off, you know, despite the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation advice to make people in prisons a priority group for COVID-19 inoculation, this has um, this has been advice that has been not heeded. Only just only just 22% of New South Wales prisoners have been vaccinated by late August when cases began to emerge in prisons. This is far lower than the corresponding statewide figures. By late September, up about one-third of all prisoners had been vaccinated, still lower than the statewide rate. And as of late September, um, late September, 300 prisoners have contracted COVID-19 in New South Wales prisons. Cases have been reported in Bathurst Jail, Parkley Correctional Centre, Civil Water Metropolitan Remand and Reception Centre and Civil Water Women's Correctional Centre. Parkley Correctional Centre in New West Sydney, privately run by MTC Broad Spectrum, accounts for the majority of recorded infections by mid-September from approximately 1,300 prisoners. At least 159 had tested positive. And of course, Parkley's private management is notorious for its race and neglect of its charges. Um, Cor- Correctional Services New South Wales requires prisoners with um, flu-like symptoms to be isolated immediately, but the Saturday paper said on September 25th that at least one Parkley inmate claimed he had not been tested until five days after developing symptoms. He said that he had to wait another two days to receive his positive result, after which he was isolated. And, of course, a report by um, Denham Sandler for the 7am podcast said prisoners are mistreated at Parkley if they test positive. They are locked in a cell for up to two, 24 hours a day and only let out for a shower one time every two, um, three days. Many did not see sunlight for two to three weeks. And a New South Wales parliamentary inquiry into the management of COVID-19 on September the 17th was told about the neglect and indifference COVID-19 um, um, positive prisoners experience. And I think, you know, that the, the fact is, um, and, uh, and, and Aboriginal activist Kanan Mundine, the co-founder of Deadly Connections, told the inquiries that, um, inmates found it hard to access personal protective equipment. Um, Brett Collins, um, coordinator of Justice Action also addressed the query. We don't know how many cases of COVID are in prisons, he told Greenlet. When we talk to prison managers, they give us low numbers and say prisoners who are previously infected have recovered and no longer affected, but families of prisoners tell us otherwise. And I think, you know, um, Collins is worried about prisoners dying from COVID-19 after an officer at a COVID youth detention centre died on September 17th. COVID is more deadly for people and prisoners because prisoners have underlying health conditions such as weakened immune systems, problems related to drug and alcohol use and mental health issues. And I think, you know, um, prisoners are uh, unable to maintain distancing and, you know, the rate of infections inside prisons are about six times that of general community. This is quite clear from the United States experience. 
So, yeah, that's just a bit, I guess, of a kind of summary. And, I mean, uh, one of um, Felix sort of has a bit more comments to sort of add to this. Yeah, I think it's... It's it's all over the world where prisoners are basically... They're they're seen as as almost subhuman in the way that they're treated, especially with COVID. Uh, Prisons themselves are extremely dangerous in terms of spreading the virus, and there's almost no way to reconfigure them in order to have social distancing and proper cleanliness in the way that you can in other, um, you know, businesses or, you know, workplaces or anything like that. Uh, and also, there so many prisoners in such a small um, area, it's, of course, it's going to um, really cause outbreaks to go crazy. And the government just doesn't care. They don't care what happens to prisoners. They... They're a cost to them. That's all they see them as. And also a way of controlling society. And if prison becomes a more uh, dangerous and uh, scary place because of it, then all the better. And I think that they feel like they can get away with it because in society, it's 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 hard to get sympathy for prisoners. They're perceived to have violated some social code. But in actuality, prisoners are there because of, uh, in a huge part because of the system that we all live under, which requires that a certain number of people slip between the cracks and are forced into desperate measures in order to survive. Um, And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have any more solidarity to these people than anybody else. And, uh, yeah, it's just shocking to see how neglected they are and how difficult it is for stories like this to come out into into the media and for people to be aware of it. I think a lot of people just assume, that'll never be me, so... I don't need to worry. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're definitely kind of right. And I also just want to kind of mention as well, um, we don't necessarily have an article on this for Green Left, but there has been kind of reports that um, this issue of um, COVID-19 spreading in prisons is not comp- is not confined to New South Wales. There have been reports that in, um, in Victoria that there has been cases of COVID um, spreading amongst the prisons. Um, so, yeah, that's just something to kind of note as well. Um, in fact, we possibly might follow up a, a bit as a news kind of story to follow up on that because I think, you know, um, you know, as socialists, I think, yeah, it is very important to stand up for the rights of, of prisoners, um, especially since, you know, the whole, um, the whole, you know, justice system is really designed in a way that disproportionately attacks, you know, working class kind of people. And of course, prisons are essentially a way of keeping the population in check, controlling them through force and kind of oppression. Yeah, and uh, if you want an example of how bad things can go, in America, Rikers Island in New York is a scene of horrible carnage at the moment. It's a disaster zone, if you've read any reports about that. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a big push to close that prison because it's just it's um, it's carnage in there in terms of COVID cases. Mm, yeah, and of course, um, the one thing about the United States is it has a whole strong history of privatisation of prisons, Um you know, not that not that publicly run prisons are necessarily like good, but you know, privately run prisons are inherently worse um, because there's an inherent kind of profit motive, and you, and of course you have you have examples of, um, you know, um, prison private prison companies lobbying governments to make e um to make um sentencing easier etc. so they can have more prisoners. Yeah, make more money, and and also like it's a perverse form of capitalism in a way because the prisoners aren't customers. Like in in some ways, the market does 
sort of provide some kind of feedback in terms of the user experience and the customers. Prisoners, the the customer is the government. <laughs> the prisoners are just, yeah, they're, they're just implements. They're, they're just tools for making money for the yeah. private corporation. And the kind of last comment I just want to make is um, there's also the other crazy thing, and this is just reflective of, of the late capitalist kind of world we kind of live in. There's actually examples of prisoners being literally used for slave labour uh, for particular kind of projects that capitalists employ them to do. So, yeah, in fact, there's, in fact, it's actually being promoted as like this great breakthrough because it's like, yeah, we can, we can give, we can give meaningful employment to prisoners by employing them because essentially prisoners are, sli- are imprisoned. If you're employing them, you're essentially employing them as slaves because they have no choice but to carry out the labour. Yeah, well, uh, it's prisoners are exempt from slavery laws. And I think all the Victorian number plates are actually produced in prison. So uh, this is something I read a little while ago, but I'll have to check that. Yeah, and it was it was probably touted as, oh, giving opportunities to the... Yeah, yeah, as if it, as if it gives them anything other than, their, you know, just having to sell their labour for free. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we're getting um, we're getting to the end of our program. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week, um, and um, I hope you all enjoyed the program this week. And yeah, we'll hope we all we'll all be um, talking to you next week. Yeah, it's uh, it's been good to be here, and hopefully I'll uh, pop in for a few more after this. Hmm. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR eight five five AM. Have a good morning. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from their slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.